So, um, anyway, we'll see. Yeah. Is that Lattimore? It's a Lattimore, but it's an older version. Wow. It's, I've, I've got the, I may I've, offer you a price on that. <laughs> I've, got, I've got the Odyssey as well. Yeah? Same, same, same wow, nice. <laughs> There's cake and coffee. Come on, take a minute. Have some. You'll need the coffee to warm up because it's freezing in here. Last week I put this off. Can, while you're doing this, can I have your attention, please? Last week I put this off because I wanted to get going because the first classes are always um, way too much to cover and, um, and I don't ever get done what I want to get done. But I didn't want to ask for prayers, but tonight I'd like to do that. So we're going we're gonna to open the way we always do with prayers. If any of you have prayers, people that you would like to pray for, um, please tell me and I'll include them in our prayers. My son, I have to be careful not to break up on this. I just had a really tearful moment with my son who's teaching at, at Ave Maria, and he had a, an Achilles moment, what for me was an Achilles moment. Um, it was an extraordinary moment, and I was so proud of him. He's struggling to finish his dissertation and heaped the faults of the world on himself. I don't want to go into it in detail, but... Um, he, he, what he did made me really proud of him. Um, he's going to church more often because he's struggling to finish his dissertation. He'd been working at this for five years, and he needs to finish. He's close to being dropped from the program. I mean, it's getting desperate. I'm glad. I mean, I, I'm, the, what he, what's happening to him is a, um, a crisis moment. Anyway, he's Christopher, and I would be grateful for your prayers for him. So I'm going to include him tonight. But anybody else? Would anybody? Is there anybody else? We're praying for Amy always, still. Um, Amy is a friend of Candy, who's uh, been struggling for some time, with struggles, some problems. But any? Would anybody like to ask? Because um, our prayers mean something. I believe that. Add Laura. Laura. Yeah, she has Glad lots of job strife at the moment. Laura is your wife. Mm-hmm. Say a job. Job strife. Oh, struggles. I would think the big struggle would be with her husband, but yeah, well, that's always on the list. Number one. <laughs> oh, it's a danger. Oh, it's a danger. Will I ever stop? My parents. Your parents. What are their names? Helen and Ken. Helen. And Ken. Helen, not Ellen. Helen. Helen and Ken. Anybody else? Okay, it's going to be, so I'm going to start, and if you guys will just help me out here. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, we come on our knees um, in spirit. Um, All of us have wounds. All of us have deep, deep stories, um, great struggles, particularly in our families, most especially those we love. Um, We are grateful for the gift of our lives from you. We are grateful for the gift of yourself to us in the Eucharist. You call us to your table to take us strength by taking you into us. Taste and see. It's real. It's not an idea. Um, You are real inside of us. Help us all to take strength from your presence. I ask a special blessing on Christopher, on Lori, 
Laura. Laura, um, let me help her heart quiet with whatever's going on uh, to trust at work. For Ellen and... Ken and Helen. Ken and Helen. Helen. Do you want to add anything to that? Um, be with them. Um, have their hearts to open to you in whatever struggles they're having. Be with Amy and... Johnny Cobar lost her husband of 70 years and is going to go through a major life change. Johnny Cobar? Her husband's name? Alex. Receive Alex into your kingdom. Wash away his sins. If there's a time in purgatory, let our prayers speed it. Um, be with his wife. Say Cobar. Johnny. Johnny Cobar. Um, let this loss be a means of her growing in her faith in you. Let her be stronger for this loss. Um, Jonathan M's had to put their dog away. The kids were in tears. I look at it as a gift. Um, we always want to run away from death. It's a part of our life. Somehow we don't become who we were given to be without making a place for it. Um, let her find a strength in this loss. Um, um, and let us all find a strength in the work that we are doing together. Any more prayers? We ask all of this um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Those of you who just came in are getting more tardy. <laughs> uh, we have to stay at the school? I can only say that because it's Tom. Where's Linda? She's more than that. She's the home. When you see her tonight, tell her I'm dropping her from the class. <laughs> She'll be rejoiced. No, no. Thank you so much. Also, the student council, and we'll figure that out. <laughs> see what you can do about it. I already lost two jobs because I flew in the face of student. It doesn't frighten me anymore. God, I hate God. The blackmail situation in school today is horrible. Just horrible. Don't get me started. <laughs> Okay, let's start. Um, this is the only time I will have done this. The reason I did two poems last week to start is because there were so many newcomers, and the purpose of the course, as you all know, is to is to find Christ where ordinarily we don't see Him. So I wanted to begin with two poems that present images of Christ at work, actually at work, that were so different that it would be impossible for people not to see that Christ is at work in, in amazing ways. He's there in a bird. He's there in a, in a little four-year-old girl. So, and I said that we would read those same poems tonight because we were doing two of them, and ordinarily we do one a week. So from now on, we'll just do one lyric, but tonight I want to pick that up. Um, I'm hoping it'll help those of you who are not used to reading lyrics because they may seem like strange things, but to me these are two extraordinary poems for the way they show a divine love in our lives where ordinarily we would not see it. Um, Does anybody need a copy of Supernatural Love? Or yes, I'm mm -hmm. 
Remember, the wind hover was written by Gerard Manley Hopkins. He was a Catholic priest. By the way, I didn't get this information last week. Gerard Manley Hopkins was involved in the Tractarian movement in England in the middle of the 19th century. If any of you know that the broad English Protestant church was in a crisis. Um, there were Protestants who were deeply upset because they thought the church was becoming too liberal, too relaxed, too comfortable. And they wanted reform within the church. And what happened when the members who were involved in that reform, when they began to go back into the history, these are all Protestants. When they go back, when they went back into the history of the church, they began to see that there was something wrong with their faith, and a number of them converted. They became Catholics. John Henry Newman was one of them. He was a close friend. He and Gerard Manley Hopkins were close friends. Hopkins was a poet. John Henry Newman, you, you know, went on to be one of the great modern fathers of our thinking. I mean, the work that he's done in our church was really amazing. Um, and by the way, he's written a book on the development of doctrine that was the fruit of the efforts that he made when he went back and begun to study the history and realized that all the claims that the Protestant made were wrong. So he wrote this book on the development of doctrine to show that the, the, like, you know, the, the beliefs with Mary and some the immaculate conception and things like that, the, the transubstantiation, were not corruptions imposed by a flawed Catholic mind. It was the work of the Spirit over time. It's a remarkable book, and it opens, interestingly, with a provocative... Uh, he's, he's a good... I mean, he's English. He, he would be far more courteous than I would be. Um, he opens with a paragraph describing the English people in their bigotry. I mean, that's how far he'd come. He was, he was addressing an English audience was essentially Protestant that thought that its attitude towards Christianity was the right one and that the, the practices that they'd instituted against Catholics were justified. And Newman came to a point like a lot of, like a lot of people who were involved in that reform and converted and saw very, very differently. So Hopkins came out of that movement, 19th century, he's a priest. When he describes this moment, when he looks at the bird, and it's as if this luminous light, you know, is shot forth in this in this show of display of power, he describes it in terms of something frightening, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous. Clearly, he knows the closer you get to holiness, the closer you get to seeing Christ the more dangerous it is because if you fall off then, as I think so many of us often do, the fall is greater because we've come farther. So don't be surprised at those words. I didn't comment on them last week, but I want to throw them out tonight because we're reading it again, okay? Gerard Manley Hopkins, The Wind Hover, <clears throat> To Christ Our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him, steady air. And striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy, then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind, 
my heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achieve of the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valor in act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plow down cillian shine, and blue bleak embers, ah my dear, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold vermilion. You all see the meaning of it now, right? With the conclusion, his, his description of the farmer plowing and the fire going out and what he sees in it, that those are images of the crucifixion, that same buckling that took place in the bird when he mastered the air. Yeah? When all of those powers gathered together in that moment of mastery and then this crumpling takes place. Yeah? It's there in the in the farmer's work and the so in, in one sense what Hopkins is saying for all of us who and, and this is the more important in America because Americans the American psyche is based on being better than anybody else, mm-hmm. winning, achieving, the Olympics, you know, we've got to win. Um, there's something for that. I mean, the, the, I think there's a good in that, but this, for Hopkins, he, he knows that a farmer, any of us who just stay at our work day by day, when there's no recognition, no honor, that there is some glory coming out of that, like a farmer plowing the earth. We can't miss that because it's particularly in America. And by the way, you all know this by now, because the Iliad is flying right in the face of that. We think the one who has all the booty is great, and we've seen, we're going to see what happens to it. The people who, who, who give their lives to being successful and having wealth, and that whole world is going to collapse. That's where the Iliad is going. Yeah. So here in the wind hover, in these lowly things like a bird, and the, the, par, the farmer plowing, and the fire going out, He's seen images of Christ. Okay. Um, this is Gertrude Schnackenberg's Supernatural Love. And you all know, this time when I read it, keep in mind all of the images of tombs, of death, the eye of the needle. Remember Christ saying, nobody can get um, harder for a candle to get through the eye of the needle, remember? Um, easier, easier. Huh, or, easier to get through. E- yeah, easier, right. Um, um, the father in his head, completely missing what's going on. Um, her, her stitching, the word beloved, her, her preoccupation with, Christ, um, with carnations. And remember, carnations mean flesh, pinkish. That's the word... That's the, the root of incarnation that God took on flesh. And she pricks herself with this ne- um, needle and the associations with clove, the French, for, for, the, for the flower, um, that also means nail, so that all the images of the cross are there, that in this moment, um, when she pricks herself, something's happening. Um, and, um, and that's why the, the title of the poem is Supernatural Love. <clears throat> Supernatural love. My father at the diction you understand touches the play, the page to fully understand the lamplit answer. Tilting in his hand his slowly scanning magnifying lens, a blurry glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred. 
one finger on the miniature word as if he touched a single key and heard. By the way, oh sorry, notice how every everything in this everything in this poem speaks. The when he touches the page, it resonates. He's hearing some cosmic voice. Something reverberates. The needle speaks. There's nothing that, that is indirectly in what she's saying is. In the beginning was the word. The word was the means of creation. We'll read a poem of Hopkins. It's going to say the same thing. If that's so, unlike the scientific view we have of things that says all things are inert, this poem is saying all things speak. They have their own identity. They're all speaking, whether it's the needle or the thread. or So near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word as if he touched a single key and heard a distant plucked infinitesimal string, the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as the study's gloom where as a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there. He bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I am four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor, trying to stitch beloved X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to identify carnations as Christ's flowers knowing I can give no explanation but because. Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does. For following each X, I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads, The pink variety of clove, conatio, the Latin, meaning flesh. As if the bud's essential oils brush Christ's fragrance through the room, the iron-fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted, secret, bitter ecstasy. The stems squeak in my scissors. Child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud the clove, a spice, dried from a flower bud. Then twice, as if he hasn't understood, he reads in the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth, beloved. But my needle caught within the threads, thy blood so dearly bought. The needle strikes my finger to the bone. I lift my hand, it is myself I have sown. The flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy. Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnations bloomed from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ's when I was four. Mm. And an amazing thing poetry is. Um, okay, let's start.
What I'd like to do tonight. Yeah. We did the window. Oh, well, that's gone. If you were in class, you'd know these things. <laughs> um, what I'd like to do is um, every week, by the way, I'm just going to spend. This, it always ends up being too long, but I'd like to spend a, a short a period as I can reviewing because I think repetition is really important, going back and relooking just to carry it forward. So every week I'm going to review and then try to move on. And to, to, I'm going to try to leave time for questions at the end. So um, signal me, would you please? Um, somewhere around eight, can you? Um, okay, last week um, we talked about the purpose of the course, that um, the whole purpose of our course is to find Christ where ordinarily we wouldn't find him. And my claim was that there are certain poets who are actually carrying on the prophetic tradition, and I went through that. I showed you how the two traditions line up um, and went through that for a moment. I'm, I want to start because if I don't say this, I know I'll forget it. I'm going to make I'm going to make a provocative claim here. See if you catch me on it at the end. I mean, some of you, when we're done with the Odyssey, may see it, may say that I was just full of gas and claiming too much. But So hold on to this and remember because if you disagree with me at the end, I'd like to, I'd like, I really would like to hear from you. But here's the claim I'm going to make. Um, that we cannot, we cannot fully understand what's at issue in the, in the battles that continue to go on between East and West. Now I'm thinking of Christianity and Islam primarily, but we cannot fully understand what's going on if we don't know the Iliad. So how's that for a claim? That's a big one. <laughs> oh, see, I've got a skeptic in the mid already. Um, so let's see if it bears out. At the end, you can tell me I'm just blowing air, but, but I want to make that claim. And, and that's partly by way of going back to what I said last week, that I believe that the Iliad and the Odyssey belong with Genesis and Exodus as the founding works of civilization. And all of them, the, the, the beginnings of the Bible and the Iliad and the Odyssey are about foundings, a people coming together for a special destiny. They've been called out. The epic hero has a divinely appointed task. He's, a, he's carrying something. The gods are with him. He helps reveal some disorder among a people, and because of the struggles he goes through, a new spirit is introduced into a people, and they become reconstituted. They acquire a new identity. In the Bible, we know that this is Jews, right? God, God called his chosen people out. He founded a nation. And, and, and we learn, reading through the Old Testament, that they were to take that word to all the nations of the world. It wasn't meant to be confined to themselves, but that was their calling. And then Christ came to, to, to fulfill that and carry it out. But that founding takes place. And the claim that I'm making, it's a little bit early because you guys haven't read it, but that's where we're going is that the Iliad and the Odyssey are doing the same thing. They're about foundings, 
But the prophetic element belongs to the natural order side of it. It's not revelation. It's not coming from God. It's revealed in nature. So one of the things that we're getting from Homer is he's showing us that there are things going on in nature that are actually meant to correct us, to help us find our way. They're there. We don't find them in the modern sciences. The frames of reference are gone. But they're already there in the beginning. So um, the, the, the epics have a special place in our heritage. In some sense, there are beginnings. And not to know them in some way is not to know ourselves. That's how important it is. So this isn't just a technical matter of lining up with our faith. And for, for me, it's a way of helping to fulfill our faith because we're rooted in nature. There's something about what God did with nature that's meant to help us. The great poets bring that out. Okay? So we talked about the prophetic nature of um, these works, and I gave some qualities. Um, remember, I, I gave three qualities to its form, the, what I'm going to call the form, and I'll come back to that. Um, that, it, that in the epics, there's a shattering of what I call a shattering of the veil, a, a removal of the veil between the physical and spiritual realms. We see a divine order actively intervening, involved in the affairs of men. So we actually see what God does. And let, I can't remember if I said this last week, but I want to say it right now because it, it's, it, to me it's just so important. Lots of people, moderns, read the gods, interpret the gods as evidence that Homer believed that there was no free will. I believe that could, that could not be more wrong. It's really clear that Homer does believe that man has free will, but the gods are in Just think about this, because we, our faith, our, our reason teaches us that we have free will. Imagine what the two greatest gifts God gave us by nature are free will and reason. I hope that's clear. St. Thomas says you can't separate them. You cannot. We wouldn't have a free will unless we had a reason to help us look at things, to help us learn about the decisions, you know, the issues we face so that we can make a good choice. So you cannot separate reason from our will. They're inseparable. The same thing's true of reason, right? What's the good of having a reason if we don't have a will to act on it with what we see to make choices? They are inseparable in our, the nature of the soul. If that's true, then, and these people say, why, did, why does God let those things happen, you know, all the evil things in the world? Imagine a God who created his creatures with free will who had to try to help them and still protect their free wills. Imagine the difficulties he faces, right? He can't just come in like a despot and impose his will because to do that would be to dishonor the greatest thing. That's why, I mean, a, a, the Protestants generally believe our free will is blasted. That one of the effects of the fall is we lost our free will, it's gone. Catholics don't. Catholics believe we were wounded, in essence, not ruined. Milton, all's depraved. The, the Protestant mind is nature's depraved. The fall was complete. A Catholic doesn't. A Catholic believes we were wounded. They call it concupiscence. So we, 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 we have this strong belief in the freedom of our wills. That, that, that is the greatest gift God gave us. We're unlike anything else in creation in, be able to, in being able to choose. That means we can damn ourselves. That's how great it is. Imagine a God who would risk that. 
Um, so when you read the Iliad and you watch the gods intervening and, and the, the complexity of this issue as we move from book one to the end and see them constantly engaged, it, this is all going to mean more as we get to the ending because what happens with the gods when they re-enter the war at the end is going to be astonishing. But I'm just saying this now just to give you some sense of how important it is that Homer could have seen this, that he sees the gods intimately involved in everything men do without violating their free will. Because men are going to make choices. They're going to do stupid things. Yeah? They're going to kill people. They're going to kill themselves. They're going to um, have adulteries. They're every, we, can, we commit every conceivable kind of sin. How does a God work with us in our sinfulness to bring good out of evil, to help us come to something good in the face of all the evil, and still honor our free will? Part of that's behind the Iliad. The gods are constantly involved everywhere. Okay, so just be aware of that. That the, Their presence doesn't deny free will. When a man cuts off a head, I mean, when a man points a gun at another person, and God's not always going to... terrible. We're going to do terrible things. A lot of terrible things are going to go on in the world. You know that. We, know, we all know that. God can't come in and stop all of them. The, the question is, why does he give permission for so much evil? Well, our answer to that should be, because his, the greatest gift he gave us is at stake. The question is, what can he do to bring good out of the evil we do? The Iliad's partly about that. You know that because it starts with this horrible conflict and all the deaths that are going to come from it. Um, so one, the shattering of the veil. We see the, the gods interacting with humans. The second was what I called a metaphysical expansion of time and place. We are going back to mythic origins and I'm going to get to that more closely than I hope you all. I hope you have that that sheet, the the Troy legend background. Mm-hmm. It's really important. There's nothing that goes on in the Iliad that doesn't include mythic origins that have been carried forward. They're active in the present. One of the problems with modern psychology that I'm going to say is it's too isolating. Can we ever expect to deal with our problems? without realizing that the roots of them very often go back generations. How can any psychoanalysis, psychological analysis, come to grips with that? Yeah? I mean, what's going on in our lives right now is so often the result of generations that have... We, as Amer- the modern mind tends to isolate it. What Homer's doing is expanding it. He's showing... The, I'm going to come to this in a minute... He's showing that nothing goes on in the world that doesn't have these tremendous backstories. Added to backstories. Added backstories. Now you tell me which is more real. Our modern view that all we have to do is get straight and you know, whatever problems we have in the immediate present of our lives and everything will be okay. Or the sense that we are carrying these burdens that you know, are the result of ages and generations and the third was um, what I called an exploration of the disorders between the sexes, that one of the effects of the fall are these um, disorders that men and women have with each other. They are at the root of our nature. We are sexual. Um, and one of the effects of the fall was this estrangement from each other. It, it's hard for us to come together. It's hard for us to resolve, to come into union together. Um, and the epics take that as one of its principal subjects. 
You know that the war was fought because Paris and Helen took off. Um, and the war is being fought about a violation of a marriage. When we do the Odyssey together, it's going to be fundamentally about marriages. Odysseus is going to get home. In the opening chapters of the Odyssey, we see three families. Homer, he's, he's so extraordinary. He shows us three families. Nestor's. I apologize. <laughs> Nestor's family, his marriage. Menelaus's family, because Menelaus and Helen are going to return home. And Odysseus's family. Every one of those homes is in a mess. There's something wrong. When Odysseus struggles to get home, he's going to encounter all of these archetypes. And I'm going to make the argument when we go through it is he will not be able to come home to make the marriage a man is capable of without dealing with those archetypes. It's the essential condition for him and his wife. It's got to be a part of her life to learn to deal with those things before the two of them can actually come together in the way that we understand marriages, the possibility of, of what a marriage can be. So this, the, 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 the difficulties between the sexes are at the, at the root of this. It's buried in the beginning. The priest comes and says, give my daughter back. Agamemnon won't do it. He and Achilles quarrel, and, and um, Chryses is taken back, and Agamemnon says, I'm going to take Chryses. Ag- Achilles' woman is taken away from him, brutally taken. What man could be at ease with that? I mean, th- think about how, d- how deep and intimate and personal that dishonor is. And the quarrel starts, and he's withdrawn, and then devastations follow. So, so Helen and Paris, the taking of Bryces. So the sexual relationship is, is very much at the heart of what's going on in these two classical works. Okay. Can you state the second uh, thing again, the second form? Oh, the um, metaphysical expansion of time and place. We're going back to the beginnings, and the beginnings are always, these mythic beginnings that belong to this remote past are always with us. We can't ever escape them. When Odysseus goes on his voyages, he's in a sense encountering these mythic archetypes that are a part of the unconscious of all of us. Didn't need Freud to tell us that. Homer knew it. 3,000 years ago. Um, And I said one of the qualities, one of the prophetic qualities of these works is that they show us things that um, we, we don't like to see about ourselves, that it takes a lot of courage to look at these honestly because it asks that we begin to see something about ourselves we generally don't want to look at. Um... Plato, Homer was called the great teacher of the Greek world. Plato and Aristotle could never have done their work. If you read Homer closely enough, you come to see that everything that Plato and Aristotle did was made possible by Homer. It was the poet who opened that world for the philosophers to conceptualize really what happened. Um, I want to take a second with this notion of prophecy of, of the that the works that we're reading are prophetic in the sense that they're showing us things that ordinarily we don't want to look at. They're asking us to to have the courage to see difficult things. And yet in the context of a real world, exactly like the world we live in. We're in a business world. Um, People strive to get ahead. They use other people to get ahead. You, You hear this thing, watch your back. 
you know, that people were always using other people. It, it's like an image of the Trojan War. I mean, people using other people as objects. So the world hasn't changed in that sense. We live in that world. The question is, do we just go along with it, or do we reflect on it and learn things about ourselves to, to help us be different? Um, Plato took this in the, in the Republic, his great book, The Republic, and late in that book, in book, it's in book seven, he gives us what he calls the allegory of the cave and the divided line. It's, it's, it's the difference between the invisible world that we don't see, what he calls the world of intellection, what the mind can grasp, and the visible world, the world that we see with our senses. Okay? I don't want to go into that because it's not a point, but I, but I do want to say this. Plato's critique of the poet, this is why it's so important, because he's, he, he's really critiquing Homer, and he has very few good things to say about Homer. He calls the poets liars. That unless, unless we can do something with Homer, we, he says we're going to create this ideal city and we're not going to let the poets in because the poets are deceivers. Here was his critique. This was his image of reality. He said that all of us live in a cave. All of us. All of us. And he said that um, the condition of the cave is this, that, that there are people chained to a wall down here. They're chained. We're shackled. It's a kind of unknown kind of prison. Up and behind these people, all of us, are people walking in front of a fire, carrying books. And the light from the fire casts shadows on the wall. Shadows, images, or we can use the word appearances. Everybody in the cave takes the appearances for reality. What causes them? Books. Freud. Darwin. Homer. You name it. Imagine our life without books. Make it that simple, okay? Can anybody conceive of the way that you think that wasn't formed essentially by a book, the Bible? The words that we read? Yes? I mean... I hope that's obvious, that there's nothing that we think that hasn't been shaped, filtered for us through books. That's our learning, right? So he's saying that all of us are oriented to this world, tend to see things as they appear to our senses um, because of our reading. In, in one sense, it's, it's as if reading teaches us to look for things and then we look and justify ourselves because we find them. Yeah? That, that is, uh, here, let me put it, the, the, James, he was here, right? James was here. Yeah, James, you, the young black kid who was here? Yeah. Was he, he just wrote me, he took off for school and he wrote me a couple of days ago because I, I told him to stop thinking about majoring in business and get his head straight and major in literature. <laughs> Good. Because he, he, he just has a point. If you talk with him, you know. Anyway, I said major in literature and minor in politics, or just so you know that I'm not that prejudiced. Or I said major in, in politics, and lit, but get in the humanities because that's where you belong. Anyway, he wrote back and he said, tell me how to read literature more deep. How do I get to it? I haven't read it. I haven't written it back. But I'm going to say this to him. When I did my dissertation here at um, UD, Louise Cowan, who ended up being my dissertation director, just passed away a year ago, 
one of the most extraordinary teachers I've ever had. Um, I was taking a class on Dostoevsky and writing papers, and and um, yeah, she wrote back on one of my papers. I had already been, I'd already, Suzanne and I had met at Berkeley. We were, we met in our junior year. I graduated from Berkeley in English, did my master's at UCLA, and started teaching, and then I did a couple of, or I did a fellowship. So I was, and older, I was in the middle of my life. I was not a young kid. Most, most PhDs are younger than I was, far younger than I We had two, three kids. And um, lots of people would have said what we did was insane. Um, lots of people would have talked to other people out of it. Um, we came here for me to do the doctorate in literature, and I was in a course on Dostoevsky and a written paper Louise wrote back on my paper. I'd, I'd never had a teacher make a comment like this. She said, Bob, you know how much I think of... <laughs> Don't make those faces. <laughs> she said, she said, she said, you know how much I think of you, but you read too much for your own ideas. I'd gone through Berkeley. Some of the best teachers in literature were at Berkeley and Cornell when I was there. She said what she was saying, and nobody had ever said that with all the teachers, and really some really bright teachers. She said, you read too much for your own ideas, that I was reading literature too much with what I already had in my mind to find what... And I think, if you all think about it, I think most of us do that a lot. I'm going to write back to James and say, the one piece I can advise is to be open to what's St. Thomas, to what's there. Because the danger is we so often go through the life turning things to fit what our minds want. I think we all are adult enough to know that. We make the world over in our own image. So Plato is saying we live trapped in this cave, in this darkness, with our failings. And the, the way we perceive things is determined by the books we read. It won't be until we begin to question everything that we will begin to come out of the cave, and when we do, we'll, what we'll discover is what, what Plato and Aristotle called it, what we know, and here's God in the Old Testament. What did, what did God call himself in the Old Testament? He is being itself, uncreated being. He is being. I am. What does that mean? Being. I am. I am that am. Plato said, it's only when we come out here that we will see being itself. Nothing that has its causes in here, it's uncreated, it's uncaused, it has its own being, its own reality. So he said, the, the only true poet, the true poet is the poet who can present appearances as they are, alien, we go back into the story, we see things just exactly. That's why it's so complicated and hard to read, because you've got a million people killing each other right and left. That he takes back to the world, so we're in it just the way we experience it. Right? We're surrounded by all these concrete details. We're in a world of appearances, the way things seem. But the poet, the great poet, is the one who will show us the, the, the universality, the truth, the eternal, the unchanging things behind the appearances, the images, the shadows. So the question here that I want to throw out in the beginning, 
Homer knew this better than almost anybody. Shakespeare learned from him. Dante, all the great poets did. He presents the world according to appearances. At the very beginning, I'm going to ask this question. Things appear to be a certain way. Will we learn more about them as we go? Is the truth that we... Is whatever we come to at the end, was it already there but we just didn't see it because we were too trapped by appearances? So what Homer is doing is teaching us to look beyond appearances to see something that we didn't see in the beginning. But wasn't the last part of that? Say? Wasn't the last part of Plato's things that even if we saw what was really there, we couldn't believe it because it wouldn't fit what our mind had been seeing all along? I don't remember that, but... That if you got out of the cave and you actually saw the reality, not the images of the reality, not the shadows. No, he doesn't say that. Is it Mark? Yeah. Mark, he doesn't because... Sorry, here, I don't, I don't want to spend, no, go ahead. I, I really want to move forward, but just quickly, because it's, um, what he says is, it's only the person who begins to question that will come out, because he's not trapped there yet, right? As he begins to question, he'll come out, and he finds himself seeing the true reality, and once he does, he has to come back into the cave to help the people see it. Now, what happens when that person comes back into the cave to tell people what they think is reality is not? They're going to kill him. So there, I mean, there's your answer. Yeah. yeah. Um, wait, so, so who's that person for Plato? Christ. No. Socrates, right? And what happened to Socrates? Achilles killed. Executed. Because he kept questioning people who believed they knew the truth, and every time he asked questions, people would get angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier until finally they took him to court, they accused of him of impiety, and sentenced him to death. What happens when Christ does that? So the real philosopher, the real poets, the real philosophers are always at risk because they're showing us things beneath the appearances. We can't hide there. They're the ones who help us to see the things that ordinarily we don't want to see. And our response to them is to get angry at the people who do that. So that's where we are. What's the real prophet's experience. Yeah. What's the poem about? Sing, muse, the anger of Achilles. This poem is fundamentally about no. anger. Okay. Um, just quickly, we talked about um, the themes of the epic. Um, remember, epos means a divine word. Calliope is a divinity. She sings through Homer. Sing music. She's telling that Homer's an instrument. So she's revealing something about a divine order that ordinarily men can't see. Um, And I didn't say that last week, but I want to say it tonight. The epics are always, always sung at times of great sorrow. So even though they're celebrating a heroic act and the refounding of a people, they always emerge out of a great sorrow. Troy is going to be destroyed. The Odyssey comes into effect when Troy is destroyed. When Odysseus has come home, he's going to have to kill practically everybody for his, for, to recover his home. When the whole course of the Aeneid is from the destruction of Troy, that's what we actually see in the Aeneid, and all of the mistaken foundings that Aeneas has to go through. And then when he comes to Italy finally, He's going to have to do nothing but battle after battle after battle after battle. And the Aeneid will end 
with Aeneas killing, killing Turnus. That's how it ends. So this is a song. Remember, the epic's a song. It's sung. It's put to music. But it's a song that always immortalizes some great act that comes out of a great sorrow. How does that point to Christianity? Is there any mystery? The cross. Right at the center of our faith. Think about all the glorious things that have emerged out of that, that, that God would have taken on a human nature and gone to, gone to a wall, put his back against a wall and let himself be killed. Um, so out of that great sorrow is this great joy. One of the great buried themes that it emerges clearly in the Aeneid is every epic is about some, an affirmation of some great thing that comes out of defeat. Put it this way, you, we, I think I read this, right, last week when I read Achilles saying, you wine sack, you dog ears, when he's, and then he says, not, not when all of the ships are burning, you're all dying, will I come back into, the, you know, he curses his people, he wants them all to die. What ha- well, I'm giving it away. He's going to get his wish. He's going to get what he wanted. And his best friend is going to die. And then he's going to have to live with that. That's what this is partly about. The, the, it's this uncovering of this sin, the things that we do and the cost of it, the, 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 the great sorrow and some affirmation that comes out of it. Out of defeat comes this extraordinary something new. That is the, 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 um, the source of bringing a people together again in a new way. That's what the epic's about. The last word that, I mean, this I didn't talk about it, but I want to say the epic is known as a mode for its encyclopedic character. Everything's in it. Homer was called the teacher of the Greek world. There's nothing in that, in his world, the Iliad and the Odyssey, that doesn't deal with every aspect of life horsemanship, cooking, marriage, war. You name it, education. Um, It's all there. He was called the educator. He was called the educator of the West. It's encyclopedic in this sense. Um, I think you all know this by now from your reading. It's almost impossible to read two pages without realizing that whoever has a name has a patrimony, a patronym, that he's named according to his father. It's Homer's way of showing we don't exist in isolation. We're related to somebody else. And very often, when he's named, we get a backstory. We'll hear a story of what happened to his father, or, you know. So we, we over and over again, we, we realize that nothing goes on in the present that doesn't carry the past with it. I, I think about it in terms of marriages. You know, when we have a wedding and a family reunion takes place and the family hasn't seen each other, every, everybody, for a long time. It's not uncommon for people to sit down and then you hear at a table, they're talking about Aunt Jane having run off with somebody, or Uncle Joe was alcoholic, or, you know, we get all these backstories, and they're all full of wounds, but, but suddenly we, we get, here's the wedding, it's a wedding, right, it's a, it's a cause of celebration, but hidden behind it are all these backstories of these wounds or infidelities or, you know, whatever goes on. We can't read a page of Homer without seeing all these backstories. Yeah? Now take a look. Take, take out that sheet I gave you. I, just, I don't want to spend much time on this, but... The Troy legend. Uh, 
I'd, I'm not going to read all this because it's too much and I want to be careful of time, but I'd, I'd like you all to please read this because it will help. It's, it's just brief, but it'll give you the whole backstory of the Trojan War, and it's crucial because if you read this, it will make so much more sense of a couple of things. There, there are two especially that I want to touch on tonight. Um, we, we learn in that opening paragraph, Dardanus is the, is the founder. It's going to play a huge role in the Aeneid because Aeneas is going to find out when Troy is destroyed that he's going to return to his origins, and his origins were Dardanian in Italy. He's going to go to Italy and found Rome, which is the center of Christendom. So it's not a small thing. But look at the second paragraph. As a punishment for trying to overthrow Zeus, Apollo and Poseidon were forced to take on the role of slave laborers for wages. Think about the way in which human beings use gods. And that may sound absurd, but I can't believe all of us, we, 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 I, it's hard to believe we don't. The second commandment is don't take the Lord's name in vain. That does not mean don't swear. It does not mean that. It means don't speak for God. The danger is, so, particularly religious-minded people, one of the dangers that we all face is that we, we attribute things in our lives to God because there's a danger of enhancing our own life when we do that. You know, it, well, there's a hubris. There can be a hubris. In fact, it's gonna, we're going to find it everywhere in this book. Everywhere in this book is going to get unmasked. So here, humans, we got an image. So if it sounds mythic, don't let it just be mythic. I mean, there's always a reality here. How, how often do us as human beings use gods? I mean, I'm putting that out literally. I think there are times, don't take, why is it the second commandment? It wouldn't be the second commandment unless it were a grave danger to us. How often do we assume on, how often do we presume on God? It's like being entitled. We think we're, you know, God's doing this or something. When we've got to do what Homer's showing us is there's something in the natural order we've got to learn to submit to, to learn from, because one of the dangers is, as we'll see with all these men, they attribute these great things to themselves with the gods involved, in, and it, it, what it does is make their pride just that much worse. As a punishment for trying to overthrow Zeus, Apollo and Poseidon were forced to take on the role of slave laborers. So Lambda used the gods to help accomplish this task. And by the way, if a person is that kind of person, that proud, that selfish, is it any surprise that he wouldn't repay them? I hope not, because it seems to me it's in his character. If that's what he does, he doesn't see how much he's using the gods. Laomedon, who was the son of Elus, took the two gods into his service to help build the walls of Troy. Aeacus, one of Zeus's mortal offspring, and the father of Peleus, who's Peleus? Son, huh? And, and Achilles' father. Achilles' father, the, you know, the son of Peleus. The father of Peleus was asked to assist. A fact which is significant because it eventually came to light that an oracle had decreed that Troy would be taken one day in the place that it was fortified because it had been built by human hands. That is, out of human hubris, that humans thought they could do this all by themselves. What's that song? I love that. It's one of my favorite songs. Except the Lord build the city. You labor in vain that build it. 119 or 118. Or, it's, it's one of the great prayers. Unless the Lord, except the sword build, except the Lord build the city, he labors in vain that builds it. When we start undertaking anything, 
on our own, as if we're great enough to accomplish it, as if we lived in isolation, we're in trouble. Laomedon's that figure, right? That's what we're learning here. This is one of the backstories. When Laomedon refused to pay the gods their wages, Poseidon sent a sea monster against the city. That is, he's going to get punished. What else can happen? And would relent only if the king sacrificed his daughter, Hesione. Heracles happened to be visiting Troy at the time. Laomedon promised to give him immortal horses as a gift he would save his daughter. When he did so and was denied the gifts, Heracles took revenge by joining forces with Telamon, Peleus' brother, and sacked Troy. So Troy's already been sacked. But here's the interesting thing. Laomedon presumed on the gods, didn't repay them. Heracles comes at a time when he's going to lose his daughter. That is, he's getting punished. He offers to pay him. What does he do with him? Reneges on him. How not? The people who are presumptuous like that will never make up their... They don't pay their debts. Be, why? Because they're presumptuous people. Sorry? Say? They don't feel they need to. Yeah, yeah. Just this presumption, this pride in us as humans. So Laomedon was killed. So Troy has already undergone one sacking because of an, an impiety of this awful pride in humans of assuming things about the gods. When Prime and his wife Hecabe were about to have a child, Hecabe dreamt that she would give birth to a flaming torch. Cassandra, whose daughter of Prime and a seer, prophesied that the newborn son, Paris, would destroy the city. What happens? Paris runs off with Helen, comes back. The Achaeans gather together. We've got the Trojan War for nine and a half years. Here's the second. So the first one is, I just want you to remember Laomedon, because you're going to keep hearing that, that name come up a number of times. This is the other, and this is so important because this goes to the climax of the work. Peleus loved a sea nymph named Thetis. Who's Thetis? Achilles' mother, who was also loved by Zeus. But when Zeus learned of an ancient prophecy that the nymph would give birth to a son greater than the father, we have to ask ourselves at this point, this is a scary question, who's greater, Achilles or Zeus? I don't want to answer it. <laughs> scary question. He would give birth to a son greater than the father. Zeus forced Thetis to marry the mortal Pedia. Because if he married a mortal, he'd be sure of its inferiority. The marriage was a wound and humiliation to Thetis, and at least, as Zeus thought, a safeguarding of his own divine power. All of the gods except Eris, the goddess of strife, were invited to the celebration. So Thetis was going to marry Peleus, um, a mortal, She's a nymph, quasi-divine. So in Achilles' past, on the feminine side, is this, I don't want to call it a divine wound. Call it a divine wound. It's a wound in the divine order that his mother carries. All of the gods except Eris, the goddess of strife, were invited to the celebration. Eris came anyway. She brings an apple that says, for the most beautiful on it. She tosses it into the ring, and Hera... Athena and Aphrodite all claim it as their own because each of them has a, a distinct beauty. Um, Zeus refused to make a judgment on it and he turned it to Paris. Each of the goddesses promised the younger man a different reward. Hera offering him greatness, Athena, honor, Aphrodite, the most beautiful woman in the world. What does that say about Paris? Just think about his sensuousness. But the one thing he wants is a world that is, because it's going to play out in the book. 
He, he loves beauty in its earthly sexual form. We're going to see that in a minute. Paris chose Aphrodite and later with her help took Helen back to Troy and brought on the Trojan War, hence the judgment. Um, you, I, I'd like you all to read this. Over on the other page, you've got the lineage of, um, of Achilles. Um, and the final page, I just have some further notes. So uh, it would probably help a lot if you, if you read it. It's very brief, but... Okay, very quickly. Um, that's the backstory of the war. Now these technical, I want just very quickly, you talked about epic. The invocation you noted is, right? The invocation is a prayer. Every epic. The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid. Um, Paradise Lost, Milton's Paradise Lost. For those of you who are here with Dante, very early, Dante doesn't begin with an invocation, but early in the poem, Dante does make prayers to the god to help him fulfill his calling. What, what he learns in the course of the Divine Comedy, you, you know it, I know, Tom, you do. What is a calling? That he has to come back to write this story when he knows people are going to get angry at him for what he does. But he has to have the courage anyway. So all of the epics begin with this prayer, this invocation to the gods. In Medius Race, every epic begins in the midst of things. How does Dante's Divine Comedy begin? In the middle of the course of my life, I found myself in a dark wood. All of us, I'm assuming, all of us come to some point in our... My son just had it. I mean, I just can't... God, it's just... My thought with my son tonight is he's with God far more than he knows. All of us have these moments when sometime in our life where we look at our life and realize what a mess it's in that there's something not good about what we're doing, and um, it, we're in the midst of things. There's some crisis. We can all name them. I, I can recall several. Um, when it seems as if things are overwhelming, we look at our life and it seems um, to lack purpose and meaning. It's, over, it's emotionally overwhelming, and we know that if we don't do something, something's not going to be good. Every epic begins in medias race. Not in the arithmetic middle, in the middle of things. It means in the midst of things. I, I think I described it last week. If that point when we learn in our family that our son's on drugs, or somebody learns that our aunt had an affair, or somebody left. Jonathan and Emily, our youngest kids, have friends in the Catholic Church, and they were very much involved in marriages of their peers. And one of, their, one of Emily's close friends got married, and a, a year later, the marriage is gone. I can't remember if he left or she left or... You know, out of nowhere, we get this news that something... It's a part of our lives all the time. So in medias race, in the midst of things, something gets uncovered. Remember I said last time, the war's been going on for nine and a half years. Helen took Paris. That's not what the epic's about. Homer starts it with the quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles. It's going to go to the root of this thing called honor, Cleos. What constitutes the integrity of a human being? What Homer's going to be showing us is that there's some understanding, some potential for being realized in the West in a way that's not true of the East, 
this integrity of soul, this thing that Achilles is going to come to at the end. It's not going to happen in the East. Why? What, yeah, why? What is this thing that seems peculiar to the West, this thing called Cleos? So Homer's concern is not with the... I mean, it is, but indirectly. His immediate concern is with this thing called honor. Apollo, um, Chryses comes to get his daughter. Achilles says to Agamemnon, give her back. He won't do it. They quarreled. He gives her back, but he says, I'm going to take Bryces. I'll read that passage. He goes in by force and takes Bryces out of his tent. Achilles withdraws, and then, and Achilles says, I hope thousands fold of my men die for doing this dishonor to me. And Athena will say the same thing. This is a horrible dishonor. Um, um, and it's only because of that that we will come to the end and find out that honor is not booty. It's not conferred with money or wealth. or It's something much, much deeper. That's what the Iliad's about. So the epithets. Epithets are tags. Um, here's one. You heard one tonight. Now you know this. Kingdom of Daylight's Dauphin. Dappled Dawn Drawn Falcon. There's a compound of words modifying the bird. Right? The bird has all of those qualities. In a sense, that's, a, that's an epic epithet. Did you hear that? I caught this morning, morning morning's minion. Kingdom of Daylight's Dauphin. Dappled Dawn Drawn. They're all connected by heavens. It's, it's a compound. Dappled Dawn Drawn Falcon. All those things belong to the falcon. Epithets are usually a collection of names that characterize a person. It that goes to its essence. So gray-eyed Athena, the wine-dark sea. You know, we get all those epithets that Homer will put a couple of compounds together to show the nature of that thing, whatever it is. Huh? Yeah, say it. My Achilles. Yes. Yeah. Good. Good for you. Um, everybody has them. You all know that, right? If, if I, know, I remember once when I was at Magdalen and somebody did a character, a mimic character sketch of me. It was embarrassing to see my... But if somebody sat down and did a mimic of you with words, isn't it, wouldn't you find that somebody would give words that were peculiar to you, that were not the same for somebody else, that we all have them, that there's something about each one of us that's distinct? If we came up the words... Yeah? It's true. So Homer's just doing that. So the epithets are a way of showing the identity of things. That's in essence, because it doesn't change. Athena's always gray-eyed Athena. She is in the beginning, she will be at the end. Epic similes. Homer's always describing, very often describing things in terms of processes of nature. Why? Because nature is the frame of reference for everything he does. The gods are in nature. That's why it's so easy for gods to fall in love with mortals because everything's in nature. The gods are there. So a simile is different from a metaphor because a simile uses grammatically as, right? Um, it, they were as, I'll read one in a minute. Um, he describes the armies in terms of wildfowl. That's, it's like saying, my father's like a bear. If somebody said, he growled, that's a metaphor. But if you say he's like, if you use like or as, 
That's a simile. So you're just showing a likeness between one thing and another. And in Homer's world, the, the similes are always rooted in nature. Because why? Because we all have affinities with each other because we're natural creatures. That's the world. We, we're not angels. We belong to the natural order. Cat, cat, sorry? Catalogs. I'll come to one. Homer's often lining things up. The catalog of the ships is one of the most famous, but we get catalogs of people all the time. We do that all the time. When, Su when Suzanne goes to the store, or if I've, I've got something on my mind, I'll sit down and write a list. You guys do it all the time, no? And um, we'd sit down and make lists of the things we got. It's a natural thing to do. There's nothing Homer does that isn't rooted in the natural order. He gives these catalogs. But when he does, there's always a significance. So, for instance, in book two, when he gives the catalog at the ships, if you, if you were to scheme that out, you'd see, this is interesting, on who's on one end and who's on the other and who's in the middle? Take a guess. Anybody? Achilles, one extreme. Aias, Ajax, Aias. The two strongest men in the Achaean camp and Odysseus in the middle. Is that an accident? It's Homer's way. Homer orders things always in order to show us something. So the catalogs always reveal something. They're not just arbitrary. Aristia. Aristia. Hard word to define. It means excellence. But it also means more. It's an action. Um, it, it, it's a word to describe the power that a warrior has when he can't be stopped. We use the word today, zone. You know, when an I remember when we were younger in California, when Joe Montana and Steve Young, you know, were at their height. There were these games when Joe Montana, I mean, you, you'd watch with amazement. I mean, it would be the last two minutes of the game, and he would march down, and there's nobody could stop him. I mean, the, the defense would put the greatest defense on, and his, his passing would be absolutely flawless. And we've seen, we've seen moments like that where, where an athlete almost seems to master nature. He does something unbelievable. It's like Christ walking on water. He just does what other people don't. So an aristia means this... The best word is zone. It's like you're in this space where your power is so enhanced, so increased, that, that nobody can stop you. And, and everybody in the book has an aristia. Agamemnon has one, Odysseus has one, Diomedes, we'll look at Diomedes just briefly. At the very end, Achilles will finally have his, and when he does, lights out. It's a different... Okay, those are, those are just preliminaries. So let's start. What I'd like to do is go through the book, and um, what I'm going to try to do each week is, is try to go through each of the chapters as well as I can, just to keep you all in the text a little bit so the text doesn't seem so foreign and then just briefly comment on them. But before I do, any questions about I don't I don't want to take any link I don't want to take a question that's going to take a lot of time, but I'd be glad to stop for a moment. Any questions about any of this? These are sort of basic things that we need to know to to get into this world. <clears throat> so different from the modern novel. Something's wrong. Tracy, you don't have a question. I don't believe it. No? 
No? I have a comment. Yeah, go ahead. I've never read anything like this, you know, where he's so full and just all, what are those things we call the epithets? I mean, he's in constant, yeah. everything happens. Yeah, yes. It, it, yeah. I was telling my wife, you know, it's, it's not boring because he just, he, he's painting word pictures that, I mean, as you go along, I mean, you've got a complete picture of what's going on. Yeah. Like, like we used to have when we listened to the radio before yes. the TV. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. It's true. I'm so glad, Ron, that you're you're enjoying it. I hope. Yeah, it's true. Okay, two questions that I've got for tonight. I just want to throw them out, and hopefully, we'll have some time at the end to answer them. What's the difference between Achilles and Hector's? <clears throat> and what's the difference between the two assemblies? I want to, I want to get to that here. So we, we're going to be shown two assemblies. The Greek assembly is going to blow up the book. I mean, that's going to set the plot in motion. And in book seven, we're going to get a brief glimpse of the Trojan assembly. And the two can't be more different. East-West, radically different. Why? What's going on? with the differences between East and West. What's the difference between Achilles and Hector? So let's let's start. Are you saying the assemblies are related to the personalities or the yeah. individuals involved? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the two cultures. The cultures. Okay. Yeah, the Achilles is a product of the West and Hector's a product of the East and you know, we're I mean, as we move through the book, Hector's going to be the focus because Achilles is out. So we're going to see Hector doing lots of things. We're going to get a very filled out picture of Hector. And then Achilles is going to come back into the book later. But, um, but what is the difference between these two men? And it'll, it'll become a little bit clearer in a minute, Tom, I think. And what are the differences between the two assemblies? Because they say a lot about the two cultures. Let's get to that. Okay. Yeah. Please. Yeah. Um, I've already read the opening quarrel, so I'm going to, I'm going to pass on that. You all know what happened, but I want to go to um, um, book one. I've got to get one of your copies because I always go by page one. Book one, line um, 350. Book one, 350, line 350. We've got another. Do you want one? We've got an extra copy. No, that's all right. Okay. Line three fifty. Agamemnon has has just told Patroclus to to take Briseis away from Achilles. Um, wait, wait. Let me. I'm going to try to put Your this 350 one. Three fifty is different. Line three fifty can't be, because the lines are the same. Wait, wait till I get to it. Let me let me see. But wait, wait a second. Um, I want to put this more dramatically if I can. I'm assuming that every one of us has had a moment when we feel like somebody has betrayed us or done something unjust. Whether somebody... I, um, weeks ago, we had our, a family dinner, and William and Louis, Jonathan's our youngest son, his two oldest sons, William and Louis, got into a quarrel, and William was beside himself. I mean, just in tears, absolutely in tears. I took the two boys aside for a moment and had a serious talk with them and, um, and quieted them. But, but all of us, whether as children or adults, every one of us have, 
have felt that somebody's offended us, taken something away. Let it be a job that, that somebody comes to you and, and in your own mind unjustly takes your job away. So your livelihood is gone. If your family's dependent on you, it's not only you, everybody you love is at risk. It can be a husband and wife where a husband or a wife does something that, that, that is an expression of some kind of injustice, some dishonor going on. What's the usual response? I mean, it's, it's anger and this feeling of being crushed and betrayed, no? We, don't have to, we know it as children, we know it as young adults, in high school we know it through our lives. And it can take on smaller or greater forms. And sometimes when it's great, it's devastating. It can be devastating. I think most of us have had experiences that are probably devastating. Achilles just, he has, I mean, what is, what else, how else to describe it? He's, he's been treated as if he's not there. The woman's been taken away against his will. This is a woman he loves. Even if she was booty, he still loves her. He says that. I'm sure she had some affection for him. And he's crushed. What does he do? He's powerless to do anything. Athena told him to put his back his sword, right? All of us have had those experiences when we feel we're powerless in the face of an injustice. Somebody does something that's brutal, and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah? That's where we are. Line 350. Achilles weeps. This is the bravest man of the kind. He's weeping. He's weeping. I don't know of another man in here who weeps, except Achilles. Since my mother you bore me to be a man with a short life, therefore Zeus of the loud thunder on Olympus should grant me honor at least. But now he's given me not a little. Now the son of Atreus, powerful Agamemnon, has dishonored me since he's taken away my prize. So he spoke in tears. <coughs> His mother hears him. It's so interesting. It's the feminine that's called into action here. Not a man, not a masculine thing. It's feminine. She comes weeping. I mean, this is heartbreaking for her. Um, and, and what does Achilles do? He does what all of us does. He tells the story, right? At the bottom of, well, it's lines 365. You know, since you know why I must tell you all this, we went against the... Now he tells... What do we do when we've been unjustified? We say, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this, he took this away. And it's always with some sense of justification. I was wrong. Look how I've been abused. Yeah, we all know that. Um, then all the rest, the Achaeans cried in favor. He said, what I was doing was right. Everybody supported me, but still, I mean, it just gets, you know, it can't get any worse than this. Um, about line 395. But then if you have power to protect your own son going to Olympus and supplicating Zeus, if ever before now, either by word you comforted Zeus's heart or by action... Since it's many times in my father's halls I've heard you making claims when you said, you only among the immortals. This is so, we, at some point we've got to ask who Thetis is. This is a feminine figure. She doesn't have a great significance in terms of the male battles going on, but everything turns on her. Absolutely everything. She is the only one among the gods who came to Zeus's rescue when the gods were overthrowing him. She helped him. And what happened to her? In the marriage, she was forced to marry a mortal. So she carries with her a wound. I mean, I, sometimes I think of Mary you know, in this divine order. that There's this feminine figure in the divine order that carries a wound 
And she's the one. And now Achilles is appealing to her. Um, if ever before now, either by word, you comforted Zeus's heart of her action, since it's many times in my father's halls I've heard you making claims when you said, you only among the immortals beat aside shameful destruction from Kronos. Then you, goddess, went and set him free from his shackles, summoning to speed the creatures of a hundred hands to tall Olympus. It's the hundred-handed Briareus. But all men, Aegeus' son, but he is far greater in strength. Sit, go down a few lines, it's about four or five. Sit beside him, take his knees, and remind of these things. That is, tell Zeus what, <laughs> what he owes you. Call him this debt. Okay. Now, if perhaps he might be willing to help the Trojans and pin the Achaeans back against the ships in their water, dying, so that thus they may all have profit of their own king, that Atreus' son, wide ruling Agamemnon, may recognize his madness, that he did no honor to the best of the Achaeans. When somebody's wounded us, we want that person to get hurt. He's saying, go to Zeus and support the Trojans um, so um, that they get to a point where they bring the whole army to the ships and they're burning and all, all the Achaeans, that is all my friends, will die and then they will know. So, I know this is a hard thing to say and you probably, I mean, I remember most of the graduate, or I mean the uh, undergraduate students that I have taught over the years when I asked, should Achilles have done this? Almost all of them say no. He should have swallowed his pride and gone back into the war. And my, I mean, my answer to that is no, but you, you may, wherever you are in that, just hold off because the, the question is if he'd gone back with the war going for another nine and a half years. Something's happening. But I, but I want to make this point. This is how large honor is. And how many people had to die? When Christ came, I came, to, I came to bring a conflagration. That's our Lord. I came to bring a fire. I came to bring a sword to divide Mother, father, son, you know. So there's something about the way that we deal with the world that puts us at risk because we make these things greater than other things. And, and in doing that, somehow we strike at this great honor God has given us, the way he's made us. What is this thing called honor? Is that clear? It's great enough at this point that I've got to say, he's saying in a way that almost all of us would regret, let them die by the thousands so that they understand the wrong that's been done. That's how big this is. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Doc. There's no way I'm going to make it. Um, so Zeus says, he, he talks with Hera. Hera doesn't want, she supports the Achaeans. So what Athetis is, what one woman is asking, what Thetis is asking of Zeus is going to make a quarrel between him and his wife. Because Hera's not going to be happy, and she's not. So Zeus and Hera are going to quarrel. But Zeus bows his head. This is Zeus's will. Remember one of the two, one of the three major topics in the invocation in the beginning, the, the will of Zeus? He bows his head, acknowledging that he will do it. So what is this thing called honor? What is, what is it that Homer's showing? We won't, we're going to see battle after battle unfold as we move through the book. Men are going to be killing each other right and left, each of them with some sense of the honor that's at stake for both of these sides. That's what they're fighting for. We have to say that there's something heroic in it. Homer never describes a battle without naming a man. Never. 
That's his way of honoring a person even when he's dying. So what is this thing that's worth so much? We know that booty can't put a price on it because if you put booty on it, you can take it away. What is this integrity that God has hurt, that Homer knows that we as humans have? What is he trying to show us? And presumably it's something none of the other... Remember, the war was fought in 1200, Homer's right, or singing in 800. This tale has been going on for 400 years. Presumably Homer's bringing something to it that nobody had seen before, and this is what is passed on to us as our inheritance. Okay. Quickly, <clears throat> book two. Um, Zeus sends a false dream to Agamemnon, and this is really interesting because in the dream... Um, Agamemnon is, is encouraged to believe they're going to defeat the, the Trojans. We have to see this as, as a sign of hubris. They have not been able to defeat the Trojans in nine and a half years. He's lost his best warrior, and now he thinks he's going to do this great thing. What kind of an illusion does he live in? He wakes up, and to test his men, he tells them to go home. And all the men rush to the ships because they want to go home. But look at this, because this is crucial. Um, line 210, book 2. Homer's teaching us everywhere. Line 210. It's, it's Odysseus who calls them in back. And notice the way he does it. When he's dealing with the common men, the ordinary soldiers, he beats them and says, get back, you scoundrels. When he's dealing with the kings... He says, he, he, um, he verbally dishonors them. He says, why are you being so cowardly? So he's, he's much more careful with the noble born. But he beats the physical because it's, it's Homer's way of showing there's two very different kind of men here that need to be treated very differently. So they sit down and have an assembly. Now this is the second assembly because in the opening one, what happened? A blow-up. It's crucial to see that, a blow-up. Now, in this assembly, Thersites stands up about line 210. Notice the description. Thersites of the endless speech still scolded, who knew within his head many words but disorderly. This is so clear. Homer doesn't mean ungrammatical because he's very articulate. He means there's something disordered about his soul. So what kind of man is Thersites? At the top of the next page, line 220. Beyond all others, Achilles hated him and Odysseus. That should say something about Thersites. The two greatest of kinds don't like him. It means there's, that's a giveaway already. Something's wrong. He says, Son of Atreus, what thing further do you want or find fault with now? Your shelters are filled with bronze. People are dying. Go down. Or is it still wanting more gold you'll be um, wanting? Go down. About line 235, my good fools, poor abuses, you women, not men of a kind. He's insulted. Let's go back to our homes. Why are we doing this? Why are we, why are we dying? Go down a few lines. But there's no gall in Achilles' heart, and he's forgiving. Otherwise, son of Atreus, this re- is Achilles forgiving. Is there no gall in his heart? What kind of, quickly, I just, with no more than a minute, what, what kind of man is Thersites? Anybody? Who stirs you up? An instigator. Yeah. But towards what end? What's his motive? What's his end? Is he courageous? Is he bold? Is he honorable? Not. 
How do we look at him? Devious. Hmm? He's devious. Meaning what? He's trying to manipulate them. For what end? His own. And his own end is what? His own end is what? To go home, to get out of the war. He's a coward. He really is a coward. He's, he's using things to persuade other people to get out, and he's making accusations. Because What were they doing? They were going to the ships. I mean, they just, you know, Agamemnon just tasted, or tested them in this, this way. He's the kind of man who will always use words, disorderly is the word, very cunning. He's called an orator here. He knows how to use words to appeal to people to get them to do what is the easiest thing when in, they're in the face of doing something hard. And we all know moments like that. Thersites is that kind of character. That's why Odysseus and Achilles dislike him so much. He will always argue. He will always use words in a very convincing way. But there's always something wrong with him. Is Achilles a man without gall? Forgiving? And, and, um, and we already know from Athena in that moment when um, Achilles and Agamemnon were quarreling, she said, Athena says, I love both men, Agamemnon and Achilles. She loves them both. But there's a grievous wrong being done right now that has to be righted. So Odysseus beats him on the back, and then he says about line 260, he says, if you ever do this again, I will strip you naked, beat you, and you know, send you packing. It's at this moment that Nestor steps forward, and we have the catalog of the ships. It begins on line, about line 485. Tell me now, you muses who have your homes in Olympus. And what we get is a catalog. We get all the ships and the men. So it might seem tedious, but... but um, and here's, listen, here's the point. This, I, I don't want to quote it because I've got to cover some... I want to get to something else here. Um, he says to Agamemnon, if you want to find out... Now think about a CEO in a business. If you want to find out why we haven't lost this war, why, why we haven't won this war in nine and a half years, put all of the armies in their divisions, set them next to each other, and then we'll see who's not doing their job. Just like a CEO. And then we'll know where the problem is and do what? Get rid of them. Yeah, right. And, and so we have this long catalog. It's exactly what a CEO would do if you were saying, we've got to make cuts. Who's not doing their job? Well, you know. Nestor's the one. It's interesting because some people see Nestor as having an answer to it. Nestor is the, is the modern, he's, he's the prototype of the modern rationalist. If you want to solve the problem, organize it this way, and then you'll find out who's not doing it. Is that going to answer this problem? E- even if it's important to do, is that going to get at the heart of the problem that Homer's showing us? Absolutely not. Because he has no sense of what's at issue here. Do we even at the beginning? I, I don't think most of us do. If it's about the thing, this kleos, this honor, Nestor's not seen it. You're following, it's, a, it's like a technical rationalization. Do this, get everything ordered, put them next to each other, and then we'll see, is that going to do it? In our church, we would call that the spirit. Will that reveal the workings of the spirit in a company? No, because there's something deeper that most of us don't see a lot of the time. Is that clear? It might be too... Say your name again. Fred. Fred, sorry, Fred. Wasn't there another reason that he was aligning them up the way he was? That they were from the same city, they were friends, they knew each other. 
And he was kind of trying to get more invested in, in the success of the war. He, because if you're fighting with your friends and your neighbors, the people that you live with daily. That isn't what he says, Fred. Here, let me say, sorry. He says, Here, on, it's a, on, on my page 85, line 360. Come, my Lord, yourself, be careful and listen to another, that this shall not be a word to be cast away that I tell you. Set your men in order by tribes, by clans, Agamemnon, and let clan go in support of clan, let tribe support tribe. If you do it this way, and the kinds obey, you will see which of your leaders is bad, and which of your people, and which is also brave, since they will fight in divisions. And might learn also whether by magic you fail to take the city or by men's cowardice and ignorance as well. So we're going to get a catalog. But he's saying basically, put them in order, line them up, and we'll find out where the fault is. Why we haven't been able to conclude this war in nine and a half years. Remember what I said about appearances in Plato's cave? These are all sort of necessary steps. But are they getting to the real issue? What's this thing? Book three, turn quickly to just the very beginning. I, I, there's things going on. I'm just going to describe this briefly. I asked for eight to give me a warning. I know. No, I know. I was just hoping it wasn't. There's no way I could have gotten the questions then anyway. But beginning of book three. So after the catalog... The armies are going to resume battle. Who are the first two people to fight? When they go into fight, it's suggested that the two principals fight and the winner take Helen and end the war. Who are the two principals? Menelaus and Paris. So they're going to do battle, and the winner is going to take Helen, and the war will be over. Is that going to happen? Book three at the beginning. Now when the men of both sides were set in, set in order by their leaders, now they're all organized to enter this battle. The tro- now look at the description. C.S. Lewis once said that he could see no different. I, Lewis has been one of the great influences in my life. There's no way to estimate how important he's been in my life. I think he's wrong here. Shakes me to say that, but... Um, Look at the, this is just a, 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 a preliminary because I want to get to a, a bigger issue in a minute. Now, when the men of both sides were set in order by their leaders, the, hold on to this. The Trojans came on with clamor and shouting, like, there it is, a simile, yeah? One of Ron's similes. And it's, and it's his description I thought was perfect. They came in in cl- clamor and shouting like wild fowl, as when the clamor of cranes go high in the heavens. When the cranes escape the winter time and the rains unceasing and clamorously wing their way to the streaming ocean, bringing to the Pygmaean men bloodshed and destruction, at daybreak they bring on the baleful battle against them. Powerful description. But the Achaean men went silently breathing valor, stubbornly minded, each in his heart to stand by the other. I, I wish we had time, but hold on to this, just because I'll come ask you to at least read. What's the difference between the two men just in the way they approach battle? They're radically different, yeah? Now, Paris and and Menelaus will agree to do battle. The victor will take Helen. Right in the middle of the battle, when Paris and Menelaus is ready to kill Paris, the strap of his helmet breaks, 
Aphrodite comes and whisks Paris away, takes him to Troy. While the men are killing each other, he and Helen are making love. Okay? Now, what does this, does anybody want to venture anything? What does this say about Paris? Remember, he was the one who chose mortal beauty, a, 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 a woman. Right at the moment he's going to get killed, Aphrodite comes and rescues him. He goes off and makes love with Helen, and all, the, all of his soldiers are dying. He's in bed. Gods would say, I'd be glad to be in Paris. As, well, he doesn't, presumably he doesn't wear shoes at that point, but I'd be glad to be out of his shoes at that point. <laughs> so, sorry. He's a coward. Another Related to beauty. Can you? He's taken by beauty. He's a lover, not a fighter. He never was a fighter by nature. He does fight, actually, but there's something... But he's not really that by nature. Yeah. And in, and in some sense, it seems to me the rescuing says that there's something ephemeral, that the men who are attracted to beauty, I know that myself, the men who are attracted to beauty face a real danger because there's something passing and ephemeral in it. You can't trust it. He's not there. Weak. Yeah, scary. Gerard Manley Hopkins, one of his most powerful poems is called Mortal Beauty. He's a priest, talking about the dangers of mortal beauty. Remember, beauty's a transcendent. It's one of the great themes of the Odyssey. Odysseus is going to be taken up with all these beautiful women. It's what all men, all men have to come to terms with this. The, the, the beauty of women is an extraordinary thing. We're going to wait on the, the Odyssey, but... The beauty of women is one of the great gifts. Of, it's transcendent. It sources God. Why, why do people make so much money in, on beautiful women? We were watching something the other day. with It showed a beautiful woman in 16 different poses. With 16, Had nothing to do with whatever they were selling. Why was the woman there? To attract men. Because beauty is such an extraordinary, powerful thing. It couldn't make the money that it makes if it weren't. Homer's showing us there's a transcendent quality to beauty. And Paris, I mean, that defines Paris. Anyway, he's whisked away. I, I don't want to... Um, right in the middle of this chapter, um, the... Or wait, hold on. For Helen, or Hector goes back to um, Troy to get Paris, calls him a scoundrel. Should have called him a what was your term a lover, but some He's you need a nasty name fire. in front of that <laughs> cowardly lover or something. Um, in book five, we get Diomedes, um, Diomedes Aristia, and it's interesting in book five as you grow, go through it on page one thirty one about line. This is book five, line one twenty one. Athena comes to Diomedes, and this is what happens. Be of good courage now, Diomedes, to fight with the Trojans. Since I have put inside your chest the strength of your father, untremulous, such as the horseman Tydeus of the great shield had, I have taken away the mist from your eyes that before now was there, so that you may well recognize the god and the immortal, the mortal. Therefore now, if a god making trial of you comes hither, do not do battle, Head on with the gods, not with the rest, but only if Aphrodite, Zeus's sister, then she, she, this is Athena with her sister, do not do battle with any of the gods unless you come across my sister. And if you do her, you, you can stab, yeah. which is what happens. What happens now is 
Diomedes is going to have his Aris die. And when he kills, he's going to be killing two at a time. I mean, it's all, it would seem because that's a way of showing that he has the supernatural strength. Um, quickly, um, turn to Book Six, Line Three Forty. Sorry, I wanted to leave time for discussion. I'm going to get better at this, you guys. I promise. Mm -hmm. I do. I promise. Once we get underway. Um, about line 400, book 6. He has just come in and scolded Paris. Helen scolds Paris. She calls him a coward. This is Helen. Um, and then Hector goes to his wife's room and he picks up his son. And this is extraordinary. He's got his helmet on his head. You know this helmet with the crest on it? He's got his helmet on his head. He's a warrior. He picks up his young son, you know, recently born, and the son looks at him about line 400, whom Hexter called Scamandrios, but of all the others, Astiniax, lord of the city, since Hector alone saved Ilion. Hector smiled in silence as he looked at his son, but she and Dramache close beside him let her tears fall and clung to his hand. Um, the boy's looking at this terrifying image of his father in this thing. And then um, Andromache says, um, a line 415, it was brilliant Achilles who slew my father, Etion, when he stormed the strong-founded citadel of the Calicians, Phoebe of the towering gates he killed. She goes on and lists all the members that Achilles killed. She's lost everybody. So she says to Hector, you are my father, you are my brother, you are my husband, you are everything because Achilles is taken away. So, and everybody looks to Hector because he's the, he is the greatest warrior in the Trojan sign. Line 430, Hector, thus you are father to me, my honored mother. You are my brother, and you it is who are my young husband. Please take pity on me. Stay here. Don't go back into the battle. If I lose you, I've lost everything. Um, Hector says, line 440, all these things are in my mind, lady, Yet I would feel deep shame before the Trojans and the Trojan women with trailing garments. If I, like a coward, were to shrink aside from the fighting, and the spirit will not let me, since I have learned to be valiant, to fight always among the foremost ranks of the Trojans, winning for my own self-glory, for my father. For I know this thing well in my heart, and my mind knows it. There will come a day when sacred Ilion shall perish, and Priam and the people of Priam, of the strong-ass spear, but it is not so much the pain to come of the Trojans that troubles me, even of Prime, the king of Hecabee, not the thought of my brothers, not any of that, as troubles me the thought of you when some bronze-armored Achaean leads you off, taking away your day of liberty in tears. And in Argos you must work for the loom of another. Go down. So speaking, glorious Hector held out his arm to his baby who shrank back, in his fair-girdled nurse's bosom, screaming and frightened at the aspect of his own father, terrified. Quickly, go on over in Book 7. I want to just look at this quickly and then take a minute um, before we... On page... about This is Book 7, about line 340. <clears throat> They're taking a break 
and while they do, the Trojans called their assembly. Okay? Now, we've been given pictures of both sides in Book 3. We've seen two assemblies of the Greeks, the opening one and then the one where Thucydides spoke out against Agamemnon. And now we have the first Trojan assembly. Antoner calls the assembly, he says, Trojans and Dardanians and companions nor hear me while I speak forth with the heart within my breast urges. Come then, let us give Helen back, Helen of the Argos and all her possessions to the sons of Atreus to take away. See, now we fight with our true pledges made into lies. And I see no good things accomplishments for us in the end unless we do them. I forgot to add this. Remember, Paris, who's the principal, was in the fight to settle it, was rescued by Aphrodite and goes off and makes love. Okay, while the Trojans are dying. Antoner now says to the Trojan assembly, give Helen back. He spoke thus and sat down again, and among them rose up brilliant Alexandrus, the lord of lovely-haired Helen, who spoke to him in answer and addressed him in winged words. There's, there's that epithet, Ron, winged words. Antoner, these things that you argue please me no longer. Your mind knows how to contrive a saying better than this one. But if in all seriousness this is your true argument, then it is the very gods who ruin the brains. But the gods are at fault. I will speak out before the Trojans, breakers of horses. I refuse straight out. I will not give back the woman. He speaks. Among them rose up Priam. This is the king. He's, so Agamemnon's the king of the Achaeans. Priam's the king of the Trojans. Yeah, east-west. Priam, son of Dardanus, equal of the gods in council, who in kind intention towards all stood for. Clearly, that's how the Trojans look. If, if you go into the east in Islam and you've got a leader, he's doing Allah's will. You know, this, this thing about it was God's will. God put me here. God did this. Yeah? That, are you hearing that? And I'm a, Priam said, equal of the gods in council, who in kind intention towards all stood forth and addressed them. This habit we keep seeing of these men of, of doing that. <clears throat> Trojans, Dardanians, companions are, hear me while I speak force with the heart within my heart urges. Take now your supper about the city as you did before this, and remember your duty of the watch. And be each man wakeful, and at dawn let Ideos go to the hollow ships and speak with the sons of Atreus, Menelaus and Agamemnon, giving the word of Alexandros, for whom, and this is his son, giving the word of Alex, for whose sake this strife has arisen, and to add this solid message and ask them if they are willing to stop the sorrowful fighting until we can bury the bodies of our dead. We shall fight again until the divinity chooses between us and gives victory to one or the other. Let the gods decide the outcome of the war. Now let me stop. We have two minutes. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, we've got to be thinking about the difference between Achilles and Hector. And we've seen two different assemblies. Let me hold off on this one for a second, okay, unless anybody wants to jump in. Can, do you have any thoughts about that? What's the difference between the two peoples just in terms of the assemblies? Or is, can you say anything yet? Is it, I know it's awfully early, but at least we have two Greek assemblies and we have this Trojan assembly. What's the difference between the two cultures? Any thoughts? What do you think? I don't grasp that. Hmm? I don't grasp that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. 
Is it, is it that the, like you said, the East is going to put it in the hands of God, whereas the West is putting it in the hands of men? Can, can, can you go anywhere with that? Does that well, say anything about, is that true? They have is more it, control. The West, sorry? The Western thought is that they have, Western thinking is they have more control. The East says they don't. It's in the hands of the deities. Although they're both going to be fighting with all their might. Yeah. How would it affect the way they fight? Would it or would I, it? I think it would. Why? How? Because if it's if it's up to you, like in the West, if it's going to be, it's up to me. In the East, well, if it's, the gods are going to determine it, why should I fight as much? Anybody else? I, as I recall, in the Greek assembly, there's um, a kind of trick that's being presented. You know, Agamemnon's trying to trick them by saying, go home. And then, or is that not part of the thing? No, 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 he no, says, no. go home, and they all say, okay, great, we're going home. Yeah. And then, but then they're talked out of going home and back into battle, but that was his whole plan. So it's like he's using, using them to get what he wants. So compare that with, with Priam, what's going on these? What's the difference? It when seems you, like they're pretty straightforward, like, let's get back, and they kind of argue in a straightforward the West. way. Uh, or no, the, east. The, the east. Do you find a real argument going on in the east? No, it almost seems more, more less chaotic. There, there was fire and, and arguing, and it was just a, it was ready to, it was a powder keg, ready to go both times in the west. Same it's, thing again. It's smart, right? Yeah. It's, Same it's thing. like a powder keg in the west. Powder keg. Oh yeah. A powder keg. Right. Like it's it's, it's going to blow. You can tell almost, right. not with knowing the story, that this is going to be interesting, right? <laughs> You, you, you don't know right. the whole backstory, no, right. but you can tell right. by the way it's worded. Right. Yeah, right. you know it's going to be interesting. And in, in the East, like you said, very matter of fact, hey, I think you should give her up. Nope, the gods will decide it. Right? How would that affect a human? Can you go anywhere with that? I know this is early. Can, can you go anywhere with that? Well, it's the more emotional versus the more rational. Explain that. Flush that out. Western would be looked at at this time as more emotional. Western? Well, you can talk about it either way, because leaving it up to the gods and letting the emotions be the power of the gods let down on the man to go fight versus the emotion of the men and the reason of the gods on the West. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. You're... The West is about valor and honor and all that that they're stirring up to get them to fight. We're or justice. And justice, yeah. Yeah. Is it really, and I hope it's clear, the West is contentious. I mean, people are independent enough to speak up. They go against their king. They say nasty things about it. Does anything like come close to that in the East? No. There's something about the East that's quiestic. It doesn't challenge. The West is full of controversy, challenges. There's a quarrel, a breakup. The West is going to be the cause of its own suffering. Something will come out of this eventually. The East is specific. It's just, I'm going to say, the, the wet, um, the, what's what do you say, rule for the, the West is despotic. There's a king. And Tanner speaks up, says, give the girl back. The son says, no. The father, if that happened in a family, if a son did something and that was unjust and there were consequences for it, how many fathers buy out their sons? 
Is that, no, is that not fair? I mean, we hear about fathers bailing their sons out all the time. And, you know, I mean, what good does it do if you keep bailing your kids out and they keep doing it? The East is despotic. There's no quarrel at all. There's no division. It goes to Prime and he says, Let, let's go back to battle and let the gods decide. He sounds very, this is really crucial, he sounds very religious. Right. He sounds very pious. Is he? I, I don't want to answer the question. Is he? Remember this thing about appearances. The West is quarrelsome. There's an independence and a strength. There's a, there's a question of justice at issue here, and the people are and honor, and they're concerned enough about it to fight for it. So the West is broken up, suffering, bringing on its own difficulties. The East is quiet. I'm going to say despotic. My wife's <laughs> anyway. Let me. Any, anybody want to add anything quickly? But well, if you think the guy in the East is a god, say it again if you would. If you think Priam is a god, you know, a, a or councils god, like a god, councils like a god, you're not going to question him. If it's Agamemnon, whatever his name is, Agamemnon. from the West. He's just a person. He's just a leader. He's a soldier. You question him a lot more. Yeah, yeah. Although when we in the in the opening books it said Agamemnon got his power from Zeus. It's an office given to him. I, I mentioned that. Agamemnon has his power by office. Achilles has his power by nature. There are two different orders of power in conflict. Does anything like that exist in the East? It doesn't. Anyway, let me leave it here. Keep a, a close eye on Hector and Achilles. We don't see Achilles much, but you're going to be watching all of these men in, the, in both sides fighting. Hector is the greatest warrior during the whole middle term of the book. But, but Homer gives away things. So when these battles take place, don't, a lot of battles you can forget about, but there's some battles where he slows down and goes into them in depth. When that happens, slow down, because usually something's going on that, that's revealing something to us about the nature of these questions that we're raising right now. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't do it again. I will get better. I'll get better. See you guys next week. If you would all, if, can I, before you go, if you would all keep all of us in your prayers, if you would all keep all of us in your prayers. Thanks. Thank you. No, I don't, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It really was. No, no, it's it's. it's yeah, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. It's got to be. Oh, this is a 1951 printing. The 1976 printing. The 1950, but it's got the four. Yeah, you keep it. I, no, you were really generous to do that. Okay, but I just look. Wow. I don't think I've seen a hardback in my whole life. What a, what a nice book. And it's a little bit worded differently than the one you're reading. Just worded different. differently? Yeah, the words are just different. You know, it's, Honestly. It's a, it's a translation. When it happened. No, when it's Lattimore. So it should be the same. Take it now. Or flip through No, no, you. Well, here's the deal. You are. My knowledge doesn't bend from the difference in the words as much as yours. I'm you not here. Listen, when you, when you come across a passage where there's a different, stop me. Because I want to see Okay, well, at the end, you said the bodies were buried. It was the bodies that were burned. I may have misread it. No, well, well but I'm just... The, this was the last one? Yeah. Mm -hmm. when, when, in the prime speech? Mm -hmm. I'll look at it. No, well, well it, but it also... Because I, I just... I, I think I've said this. My hearing is going. My eyes are going. I'm not kidding. I'm so aware that...
But uh, but I had uh, but I had the management set. That's really nice. I had it for decades. Okay, listen. If you're if you're if you're really serious about that, and and you thought in a week or two, if you want to still do that, do it, and I will be glad because that's a very generous.